Verse 11, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So here then we see a series of oracles of God announcing his judgment on the nations that surrounded Israel. It's interesting that although God is the one in sovereign and providential control of of actually taking his people and placing them into exile because of his judgment, he also goes back and he judges the nations that oppressed his people. Can any of us raise our hand and say, why? That's not fair. Can we? We can all day long. It doesn't matter <laughs> because God is the sovereign. Now, he, he, here's this prophet from the southern kingdom standing in the northern kingdom, uh, proclaiming these judgments upon the land. And if you notice, he condemns the sins of Damascus in the northeast, verses 3 through 5, and then he turns diagonally across Israel to Gaza in the southeast, in verses 6 through 7. He moves up the coastland to Tyre in the northwest, in verses 9 and 10. And then he crosses once again over Israel to Edom, Ammon, Moab, which are in the east and the southeast. And then notice, that's in verses 11 to 13. And then he moves up to Judah, chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, verse 4, For three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lives, lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked, So I will send fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Now, in listening to this, the people of the north, no doubt, begin to wail uh, in, in a positive manner, hailing and cheering that this judgment will fall upon the lands that surround them, as well as those in Judah. Remember, these are the people in the north that are being addressed. And then all of a sudden... Amos throws a net over their celebration. Chapter 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. So here we we see that within the land there's this great oppression that was placed upon the poor in this day. So all of this um, celebration within the hearts and minds of these people has turned to bitter sorrow and hostility, now which is set against the words of this prophet, Amos. I mean, why, after all, would the Lord bring this devastating judgment on this little nation that finally, at this point in time, is reaching a certain level of prosperity that they hadn't seen for years. Well, Amos answers the question, and it must have been very shocking to those who heard it for the first time. We see this in chapter 3, verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Okay, notice the next word. Therefore, 
I will punish you for all your iniquities. So here again, beloved, we see once again that the covenant graces, the covenant graces of Almighty God include punishment for the sins of those that are his. Precisely because he loves his people. And he loves them too much than to allow them to sin without discipline. So then the tone of judgment for the first few chapters that we see there in the first few chapters, really it permeates uh, the entire book um, of Amos. And the largest hope given to them really is uh, kind of an uncertain perhaps. (laughs) Perhaps the Lord will respond in mercy if. And we see that in chapter 5, verse 15. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. And perhaps, or it may be that, the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So there is the overarching theme of Amos. It is really the imminent judgment of God upon those that are his. That's one theme. Another theme in the book of Amos is the expectation of what's known as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And that is a phrase in which God's people were well acquainted with. It was also known as the day of God's uh, visitation. And this is something that the people of God looked forward to with great anticipation, with immense hope. But I want you to notice how Amos makes use of that phrase in which these people had long anticipated. Chapter 5 and verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, For I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, it is not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? Notice he says there in verse 17 that I will pass through your midst. What did he say with regard to judgment back in Exodus before the Israelites were delivered? I will pass what? I'll pass over you. I'll pass over you. Here he says I will pass through you. A day of darkness for which there is no light in it. In other words, for those of you that are waiting, speaking to Israel, the people in the north who had given themselves to all kinds of idolatrous behavior, he says, those of you that are awaiting the Lord's visitation, woe to you. Woe to you. Because what you're looking forward to in anticipation, it's going to be a shock to you. That's the message. 
He says, you'll be like a people fleeing from a lion, and as soon as you think you've escaped, you'll turn around and there'll be a bear. You will be like a people who will run headfirst into a bear, and then finally, if you escape that and get back to your house, you'll take a rest, you'll lean against the wall, and a serpent will bite you. That's the message. He's speaking about the coming judgment of God upon Jerusalem. And all the while, what's known as the day of the Lord, for which these people had anticipated, uh, would be darkness for them. Now we see this all throughout scripture. Um, Those that are not prepared for the coming judgment of the Lord, it's known as the day of doom. Those that are prepared, um, it's a day of rejoicing. Um, for those prophets or those leaders who preach peace, peace, when there is no what? When there is no peace, it's going to be doom. And, and that's really the message. But again, those who are waiting, those who are prepared, it is a time, no doubt, of unparalleled blessing and grace. And we know when we get to the New Testament that the uh, incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ um, is referred to as a visitation. For he came and he tabernacled among us. Amen? Now that celebration, um, or that visitation rather of Jesus, brings with it both celebration and crisis. Celebration for those who anticipate his glorious arrival and um, who embrace him for who he is and what he has accomplished. And doom for those, or crisis for those who... um, are unprepared and, and um, have rejected the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we see this um, message, we see this theme throughout um, all of Scripture. If you remember Jesus, during his ministry, he looked over the Kidron Valley and he looked at the great buildings and he looked at uh, the temple for which the disciples had pointed out to him. And he says, what about all these beautiful buildings and whatnot? And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say unto you, not one stone will be left upon another. Because as a people, again, they reject their God. They reject their maker. They reject the very Son of God. And no doubt, 40 years later, Jerusalem was leveled. So we see the same theme um, throughout um, all of Scripture. And as for Amos, here again, from the south, he comes up and stands against opposition in the north, For he is the mouthpiece of God, a shepherd called to be a prophet. But notice the opposition when we get to chapter 10. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. Chapter, or verse 12. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there. In other words, get out of here, O seer. Now Amos answers, notice, in verse 14, And he said, I was no prophet, nor prophet's son. Now this is interesting. He says, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord spoke to me from following the flock. 
And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people, Israel. Now, when Amos referred to him as a seer, prophet, uh, that is a particular accusation. He says, you, you, you go, you prophet, go, you seer. And then Amos says, look, I'm not a seer. And he uses the word nabi, which means a kind of prophet for hire. And Amos is saying, I'm not one of these typical prophets for hire. I was a sheep herder called by God to prophesy. Not for hire, but called by God. It's like John the Baptist. He referred to hirelings compared to those who are true shepherds. A hireling doesn't care about the sheep. As soon as the wolf arrives, he's out. And the wolf devours the sheep. And here, when Amaziah says, get out of here, O seer, he goes, I'm not a typical seer. I was a man watching the sheep and I was called by God to prophesy against you. I'm here to speak the very word of God, in other words. And then in verse 8, if you back up, the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. A plumb line. This is a vision that illustrates the coming judgment of God upon the people. You know what a plumb line is in construction? You... You, you, you hang it from high and it, it, it gives you a perfectly plumb line for which to begin to build your walls so everything is in line. And the people are out of line. And compared to God's plumb line, he's coming and he's about to bring forth judgment. But again, take, going back to chapter 2 and verse 6, this is the accusation against the people. They sell the righteous for silver the poor for a pair of sandals. Chapter 6, verse 3, Woe to you who put far off the day of doom, who causes the seed of violence to come near, who lie in beds of ivory. Here's people lying in beds of ivory. You stretch out your, car, your, couch, your couches, you eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. So here he's referring to the poor who are being sold for a pair of shoes. The wealthy control the government at this time and all the people are under the oppression of this very prosperous people who claim to be the Lord's. That's the indictment. That's the charge. You have judges who are accepting bribes. They're practicing law unjustly. And he says, woe to you. So there it is, beloved, the nucleus of Amos' message to the people, woe to you. Those of you that are anticipating the day of the Lord, cheer all you want, because for you it's going to be a day of doom. That's the message. (laughs) That's the message. So again, the overarching theme of Amos is one of judgment. If you back up now, to one of Amos's contemporaries, that would be Hosea. Back up two books, and we will do a quick overview of the ministry of Hosea. Again, during the middle of the 8th century, Hosea, he's called by God. If you notice, in verse 2, 
When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Uh, if, you're, if you do any type of reading of the Old Testament, we're all well aware that um, God calls his prophets to do very bizarre things sometimes. Um, in order to uh, uh, provide an illustration to the people. You know, you have Ezekiel doing all kinds of bizarre things, taking all of his goods and pulling it through a hole in the wall. You have, you know, running around naked or lying on their side. And again, this is an illustration to the people. And here, um, Hosea's marriage provides an illustration, a very vivid picture of the Lord's covenant faithfulness to unfaithful Israel. He's the, he's the faithful covenant husband. But his people are unfaithful. They've gone after other gods. They've prostituted his name. So he calls Hosea to himself. And he orders him to, hear, to, to, to take a wife of whoredom. And have children of whoredom. Um, the Israelites have chased after other gods uh, that promise materialistic prosperity. Uh, that's always the temptation for us, beloved. That's one of the temptations for us, is to, ch- to chase the god of materialism. Very easy to fall into. So he's going to no doubt bring Israel under the hand of his chastening judgment here. And he says, my people have become a harlot. But I, it should encourage all of us, But I have remained faithful. I have remained married. I have remained patient. So he takes this adulterous wife. And again, this is the Lord's way of bringing to life to the people his response to their infidelity. You're all a bunch of cheaters. You're all a bunch of adulterers, is what he's saying. Now, their apostasy, Israel's apostasy, had led them to introduce um, cult prostitution into their worship, if you can imagine that. Uh, That's been common throughout biblical times. That was common in the first century. Um, um, In pagan temples, it went on continually. Um, Drunkenness and orgies and all this type of thing. And this was being... Um, introduced in, into the, the covenant people of God by the people. But this perversion of truth is never ignored by the, by the Lord. I mean, it's not ignored here. And then uh, we see in verse 3, So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. So first he predicts the military defeat of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. 
Um, the, the girl in which would be born here, conceived, uh, was to be named No Mercy. What kind of name? Can you imagine that? Name your daughter No Mercy. <laughs> and then we see this third child that is born. Verse 8. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, lo am I, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. You who I called and set apart, you who I sanctified to be a holy nation, you who I called to be a light to the Gentile world, now you're called not my people. Whoa. This would be devastating, amen? Yet, verse 10, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Notice the heart of the Lord here. We have to jump ahead. We have to go to chapter 2. Now we see the the Lord's mercy. Again, the overarching theme of Amos is one of justice. Uh, The overarching theme of Hosea is one of mercy, although they both cover mercy and justice. It's a matter of emphasis, once again. Chapter 2, verse 14. Behold, I will allure her, I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will I Will you call me my Baal? Baal can also mean a, a master. They were worshiping the Baals, of course. Verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have, here it is, I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So the people who had been judged low am I, not my people, would be known as sons of the living God. Now, as striking as this reality is, beloved, in in seeing the mercy of God to the very people for which he brought forth justice, it is even more striking when we turn to the New Testament. 
Because what we're able to see is the outworking of this prophetic truth and its much broader application and interpretation. So, if you would, if you jump over to Romans 9... This is just another example, beloved, in how we see Christ in all the scriptures. We get to Romans in the ninth chapter. Verse, uh, well, we begin in verse 20. Obviously, uh, God's sovereign choice is in view here. Um, in Paul's argument. And he knows that someone will stand up and raise the question, um, you know, that this isn't fair, that type of thing. God said earlier, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, verse 15. So then, in verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul knows that someone will raise the question, well, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If God sovereignly choose whom he will choose, how, how, how can he find fault in us when we reject him if he's in sovereign control? That's the argument. Who can resist his will then? Hmm? Paul answers, verse 20, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Question, has Paul twisted an old covenant prophecy to the people of Israel in the north? Has he twisted this to suit his own ends in being the apostle to the Gentiles? We could all answer at the same time with that one, amen? No. The Old Covenant prophecy 
sheds light on several factors that are crucial to understanding the message of the Old Testament prophets as a whole. And that is that there will always be, has always been, a one people of God. Be they ethnic Jews or Gentiles, there is one true Jewish family, one true Israel. Always been his plan, always has been, always will be. So on one hand, as we read this, we read the judgment of God, a literal ethnic Israel actually becomes a low MI, right? I mean, when we go back to reading Hosea, when we go back to the Old Testament, when we read about the exile, and, and we read about God's judgment on his people, we see the radical consequence of that sin by way of that exile. We would all agree with that, amen? So by the judgment of the exile, they were returned to a kind of status that they were in before the call of Abraham, but yet there were no people yet, right? Because God made a people from Abraham. That's why he can say in Hosea 1.9, you are not my people and I am not your God. He had already established the covenant. So it is a kind of status for which they once experienced before that covenant was in place under the judgment of God. But yet again, on the other hand, this application, according to Paul, indicates something much larger than this small ethnic group of people. Because in the present day, we can see the precise time of true Israel's restoration. And more than anything else, this movement, according to Paul at least, is not to be viewed as something that will occur among ethnic Israel or to the ethnic descendants of Abraham in the time future, which many people in our day interpret that way. We have to see this for what it is. It's actually occurring now. It's occurring now. As Jews, ethnically speaking, and Gentiles, people from all lands and all places, are together being formed into the new covenant people of God. In other words, beloved, the true Israel of God. I think it's important that we, that, that, that we see this for what it is. And uh, therefore, is Paul um, twisting this old covenant promise to suit his own ends as a you know as a an apostle to the gentiles i think the answer is clear no there's a one people of god not a two people of god there's not two peoples of god it's one people in christ and anyone who's in christ is god's true israel those who were not my people gentiles lo am i they shall be called sons of the living god That's the fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy. This is his, a picture of his bride being restored to himself, calling her by his own name, sons of the living God. That's mercy. So we don't want to miss the ethnic reality of what was happening in that time and in that day. 
Most certainly, we don't want to miss that. But at the same time, we don't want to miss the overarching eternal reality of a no people of God becoming the very people of God. Does that make sense? Sir? Yeah, that's what I meant, most certainly, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, from the time of Pentecost on, no doubt. that The new covenant people of God was being established, being made very visible, and that's what Paul, pre- Paul preached. That was the controversy in the first century, and uh, that was no, no doubt hashed out um, over time. And... You know, you had the Jerusalem Council, you had all this, all the issues about, you know, who needed to be circumcised. Did anyone need to be circumcised? The answer was no. Absolutely not. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. We are all one in Christ. A one people of God. So we understand something of this, uh, no people of God being called the very people of God. Amen. You know, I look at our neighbors, you know. I mean, who's a true Jew? How do you determine? Who's a true Jew today? Those that are in Christ is the only way to determine a true Jew. Who's a true Israelite? Those who are in true Israel. True Jew, those who are in the true Jew, Jesus Christ. He's the true Jew, the only true Jew, the only true Israelite ever. It's Christ in Christ alone. It's Jesus, the name above all names. That's that's what we rejoice over, beloved. A forgiven people, blood-bought, purchased, forgiven. He is our righteousness. He is our entry into the presence of the Father. The whole Bible, it's Jesus. It is all Christ. Everywhere we look, we see Christ. And the reason that we can interpret the Old Testament like that is because we have the new. All scripture, Jesus said, points to who? To me. All scripture. It's not in Hosea that it was pointing to a particular ethnic people for all time. It was pointing to Christ. The truly, the true one. So there is judgment, there is mercy. Jesus bore God's judgment, providing us mercy on Calvary's cross in order that we might become the very people of God. Amen, beloved? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for fulfilling Scripture. Thank you for providing us um, access and understanding um, by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for taking out a heart of rebellious, hardened stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. We thank you that we can interpret all of Scripture as the apostles did seeing you, Lord Jesus, as the very fulfillment thereof, the author and fulfillment of all things, the very word of God, 
our Lord, our Savior, so that we can sit here this morning and see ourselves as your people, a redeemed people, a purchased people, a forgiven people, who've received mercy and grace. For you came as the faithful one to bear justice and wrath. We thank you and we praise you. In Christ's mighty name, amen.